MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today, I am welcoming back Dr. Maria Alvanu. Previously, we spoke about the plight of women in Afghanistan, domestic abuse, and law during the pandemic, as well as criminal justice. Today, we will elaborate more on these topics and continue our conversation about corona crimes. What I found staggering and outrageous, uh, really, is that the problem is not COVID itself, but rather that our response to COVID has been, you know, to keep more people at home, lessen uh, chances for women to uh, to be able to report the crimes or talk, or have a network, speak to people. So in a way, what we're saying is that it's not COVID itself, but a problem that is, is already in our environment, is endemic in our environment. And I think if there was a, if it was a depressing realization, it would have to be that. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but because you have mentioned Afghanistan a lot of times, and for many people, this area of the world is like, you know, the world that is not progressive and the world that women face problems. And I think COVID-19 brought into service the fact that women get victimized in very modern and developed countries. And I think this was shocking to some people too. It doesn't happen to Afghanistan. It doesn't happen to Saudi Arabia. Yes, it happens to the UK. It happens to Spain. It happens to Italy. It happens to Greece. And the more important realization is that it will continue to happen after COVID. So yeah. what, what can we learn from this? And what can governments do from a legal perspective to help women now under this extreme situation in COVID and afterwards when COVID hopefully is behind us? In many countries, I would say that the problem is not legal in the sense that uh, pro-COVID period, in, in pro-COVID, uh, pre-COVID period, the measures and the legislation was drafted in ways that theoretically there are ways for women to dis- denounce their abuser. The problem here lies more uh, with society, stereotyping. I mean, if, if we if we move on from the COVID period that, yes, we know that there is there are those standard situations that we mentioned before. But uh, I believe that we are moving uh, into a new phase. Um, there are no more restrictions in many countries or they are uh, getting more easy. So women will have access again in, into social life. So the question is, how can we battle? How can we uh, tackle this phenomenon? And I think that we should... Uh, we should start with society. There are still stereotypes. Um, there are still problems with women being able to stand on their own feet, being uh, independent financially, um, being able to carry out their lives without having to achieve goals that society wants them to achieve. And I'm saying this because in my legal uh, career, I have seen women that were very hesitant leave their abuser. You know why? They would say to me, I don't want to disappoint my family. I don't want to show, I don't want to feel that uh, I'm a loser. I'm a failure because society wants me to be a perfect woman, which means, you know, I didn't, I didn't ruin my family. I didn't, I was not a failure. I'm not alone. I mean, even today, let's, let's be realistic. How many companies will give a job to a woman who is 50 and who has spent her life in her household and is going out to become part of the workforce now? Nothing, zero. Yeah, yeah zero. Okay. How many chances uh, are for a woman to rebuild her life 
Or let me put it another way. Uh, is it the same for men and women when they are, you know, breaking a relationship and going out again into the dating world? Even this. I mean, I do know women that feel this anxiety to be with someone because they feel that society equates this with success. And yes, they are afraid to stay long. They are afraid to disappoint their families. Again, you know, the family card, at least in some countries where traditional roles still apply, uh, the family card is a strong one. And unfortunately, I have to say this, from my legal experience, I have met also parents who would advise their uh, daughters not to leave their husbands. They would say, we will not take you back into the family house. We will not support you because, you know, you left family home. You have now your family. You will not disgrace us. And these no, excuse me, they don't happen to Iran or Saudi Arabia. They can happen into very, very much European uh, societies still today. Well, I think there's a lot of work to do then in combating these stereotypes. And uh, specifically, I was interested by your point on networks and how important these are for, for women to be in networks, whereby you have an outlet that people can see if your face is bruised, people can see if you're having a hardship. I think this is one of the crucial things that during COVID-19, uh, governments, civil societies, NGOs, whatever it is, concerned citizens can step in and in strengthen and improve those networks maybe with technology and um, I think what that hopefully might lead to should lead to is a culture of reporting where we change our social vision for a brave woman is a woman that reports uh, and and switch around the stereotype on its head by saying actually it's you know it's the other way around a good mother a good wife whatever you want to call it is one that reports and and shows her her daughters and her children the braveness that it that that entails and and makes a positive step in the future do you think there's a role to be played there from a technological legal social perspective to improve those networks definitely i think that technology um of course, as we said before, okay, if you're living with your abuser, he can take your phone, okay? And the phone, the, the, the laptop, the tablet has been a window to, to the world during this period, okay? It was a window to the world. It was a means of communication. But generally, technology has helped. Uh, it can definitely give you the opportunity to network, to denounce, to show things, Um and it can bring dom a domestic situation in the public sphere. You know, another problem with domestic abuse is actually the adjective domestic and the whole narrative that makes all this situation an issue of the whole house, of, of the domestic sphere. Um, I think at one point we must name it in another way. It's not a domestic abuse. It's an abuse that, yes, uh, from a location point of view, uh, can happen inside the home, but it is a public issue. And by the way, uh, I have seen uh, women being uh, abused by their husbands on broad daylight and in the street. Okay, not, not even in a location that was the home. But still people perceived this as a domestic issue that they should not interfere. So they would not denounce, they would not, uh, they would not carry out any act that would show interest, because this was perceived, as I said before, an issue of the family, a family matter. Uh, and networking, I think, today and technology can help us with communication to overcome this. From the point of legislation, uh, I will insist that most countries have, uh, have a good legislation. They have a good piece of law there that, if applied, it can have results. But is it applied? 
even judges. We, we read in, in uh, legal journals cases where even judges have been hesitant because, again, the perception of the family matter is, uh, is, is prevailing, I think, in, in many cases. We have to overcome this. I think it's a, it's a systemic change and it's a cultural change and it's a change of stereotypes. And uh, hopefully uh, when the world comes out of COVID-19, we can take those lessons forward and understand what women need to be protected. And it's going to be an effort on everybody's part. We know that there is also male victimization, and in male victimization, in, in domestic abuse, things are even more hard because the male stereotype of a strong man who should not complain, of course, for being, uh, you know, abused by his wife. This is also a problem. It is a problem when uh, you hear of police officers laughing when someone is denouncing that he has been hit by his wife, and it's it's perceived as a joke. How would you feel as a man if you would go to denounce your victimization and you would be, uh, you know, treated like a joke? So it almost seems to me like so much of, of this dark reporting, of this lack of reporting, of this uh, pervasiveness of discrimination and abuse, it all comes back down really to these, these strong stereotypes that we have of, of our roles within a, a traditional family setting and how damaging these are. It's, it's interesting because when they're taught to children around the world, usually followed with a religious imagery, they tend to be so kind. Oh, Adam and Eve and the big tree and the farm and the sheep. But uh, there, there is so much pain behind these traditional roles. And it seems to me from our conversation that that is the first place we should be looking at uh, freeing people uh, from these perceptions. I'm not sure whether it is, though. Um, I mean, patriarchy definitely plays a role. And it plays a role because domestic abuse is an issue of power. And the violence that has been exercised is a violence that has been exercised as a means of power. And there is also dehumanization, uh, the, the, the dignity and the, uh, the value of women is not perceived in the same way like of, of a man's. But I think that we have seen violence take place also in families of non-conventional and traditional forms. So I think that uh, we could say that patriarchy in a sense has transcended and has even um, gone overboard and it has, it has had an effect also in forms of family or union where you don't have traditional role. It's a big issue. It seems like it's not a black and white thing, uh, Dr. Alvenu, and that uh, uh, perhaps I was mistaken to think we could just trace this back to uh, the traditional uh, uh, patriarchy. You're saying that it has, it has developed a lot. It's not just in the traditional forms. You're right about the traditional forms. You're right also about the traditional roles. And they have affected a lot also the way that women um, react. I mean, the way that women see their future and their place and... In some cases, I have to tell you, I was, as a lawyer, um, startled with hearing women not understanding that being abused was victimization because they considered it as something natural, because it is something that they saw happening to their mothers, happening to their grandmothers, and they considered that part of family life is also to be slapped in the face, okay? It's not a big deal. The constant um, efforts of, of the man to 
to steal, to rob a woman from her dignity was not perceived as something strange. And because you mentioned networking, uh, one of the steps that has not been uh, highlighted enough, and it is a step that usually ab abusers take before the actual physical victimization, is cutting, cutting the networking, cutting the network, cutting any support net uh, around the person. So we see a systematic effort to stop any communication of the wife with her family and her friends because she has no network of support. Well, it seems to me that uh, this is a, a far-reaching problem and uh, it goes back all the way to the, to the very heart, the very root of humanity. If COVID will not wake up the world to the abuse and the pain and uh, the inequality and the discrimination of marginalized groups, what will? How do we get there? Well, um, if we see cases uh, in countries like, and we see definitely, unfortunately, we see cases in Turkey, cases um, in Europe, in a more rare percentage, but, but we do see them also, cases that end up in blood. And recently in Greece, we had a case like that. I think, unfortunately, societies seem to wake up when it's too late for certain people, when they see cases that ended in death, when they see cases that ended up uh, also in a woman, um, you know, at a stage even uh, killing her husband in self-defense. Uh, cases that end up in tragedies like this uh, seem to wake up people. But I hope that they would wake up before such tragedies happen, because once these tragedies happen, they, they open wounds that uh, are not easily closed. Hmm. I want to turn our attention briefly to policing, uh, because that seems to me just as an important part of the equation as the victim. We also have to talk about how we protect and often uh, how we uh, policing makes worse a situation. Um, but. Lately, there's been new developments on this front, and you talk about uh, uh, community policing as an emerging trend. Would you get to explain to me a little bit what, what is community policing and what does it change about policing up until now? Well, I have not dealt actually uh, with community uh, policing a lot. It is a trend that we see in several countries. The, the whole idea behind it, the principle is of police becoming let's say, uh, a more active part of society, not something that is on a different level. Um, I would say that for the phenomenon that we are talking about, on a legal sphere and in parts of, of uh, from the part of organizing the police, the fact that women have become parts of the law enforcement has helped a lot. And it has helped a lot because women can have experience and they can have also a way to come closer to victims and um, help them with, with uh, pursuing their case and with denouncing uh, their case. If we're talking also about community policing generally uh, regarding crime and regarding the minority issues that we have uh, mentioned, again, we will see that um, moves like recruitment to the police for members of different groups in the society, ethnic, racial, religious, also has been a very good step. Now I'm talking generally, not just about uh, COVID-19 or uh, about domestic abuse. 
community policing and community police would be a policeman on the street, but more as perceived, acting and perceived by the society as a member of the community and not as someone who is, uh, let's say, from an outside circle. And then it goes back also to principles of collaboration with the citizens and with the smaller communities that may exist uh, in a city, let's say, for example. I think it is a bright idea. Uh, More we will see it being enforced in Anglo-Saxon countries, but there have been also steps uh, taken uh, in continental Europe. I'm not hesitant at all. Uh, It's just that in certain countries, um, the relationship between police and citizens has been forged also through the centuries and through years that, well, in some countries, the governing regimes have used police in a certain way. Um, And this has a bit influenced the perception of people towards the police. So in countries where you have had a dictatorship in the past, and we have European countries that have had dictatorships in the past, um, and when I say in the past, I'm not talking about, you know, 300 years ago. I'm talking about modern times. To build the whole model of community policing and to forge this new relationship between citizens and police uh, is still a bit of a challenge, or let's say it can be a challenge. So we've talked a bit about discrimination and uh, domestic abuse. And if we add as well uh, human rights abuses and hate crimes, how do these relate back to terrorism? And will we see a rise of this in the future? Oh, great, great question. Great question, because uh, in a sense, a lot of terrorist activity could also be uh, a hate crime, because in hate crime, you have crime that is, it has nothing to do with hate as an emotion, uh, you know, fighting with someone and saying, I hate you. No, it's not an emotional situation. When we're talking about hate crimes, we're talking about an ideology, a systematic, let's say, um, negative approach towards people of a certain alternative characteristic. And uh, in many cases, yes, terrorism can echo also that behavior. Uh, Of course, in terrorism, we have to have also the element of the behavior causing terror and trying to push a government to do or not to do something. So there is this coercion element too. Um, But the basis can be uh, an ideology of hate. And well, if we're talking about Islamist terrorism, for example, yes, of course, there is this ideology of hate. But we see that ideology of hate also, let's say, in far right or far uh, left terrorism too, where in the far left, any member of the establishment is considered uh, as a legitimate target and less than human. And at the same time, we were talking about far right Islamophobic terrorism again. Yes, uh, there can be hate ideology against Muslims with tensions with this whole situation of COVID that has brought into surface tension. And unfortunately for me, uh, a problem of COVID-19 has been that it brought the far right into the surface a lot. It has given the opportunity of radicalization online a lot because people were stuck at home and the only means of communication and entertainment and of anything, I mean, you would do, you would do it online. Uh, People were online, people came into contact with theories of conspiracy, with far-right rhetoric. The far-right has played the card of, and this was very bizarre, actually an oxymoron, uh, because far-right 
presented itself and advocated and uh, used propaganda to show itself as, you know, protector of freedoms, which is, of course, an oxymoron and it doesn't stand. But because people were frustrated by governments and their measures, the far right found this void and filled it. So I think that in the future, we're going to see a conflict, uh, especially because this polarization seemed to help uh, the far right. I don't know in what level this will be um, translated in, in forms of terrorism. Um, a lot of things have been going on uh, this last period. I mean, if we're talking about terrorism, uh, if you read certain um, articles today, uh, especially after what is going on in the Middle East, there are a lot of predictions about um, terrorism. Uh, we will see how this dynamic will go, but definitely hate crimes, definitely um, being negative, ex uh, wanting to exclude from society certain groups because of their alternative characteristics is a basis for um, extremist behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the common factors that uh, we've been, uh, about all these issues that we've been talking today is dehumanization. I find this word really interesting and it's popped up a few times in our conversation today. And I want to stop just a moment to consider that because I think it's uh, fundamental that we understand that if we are to understand uh, the root causes of the rest. And in as far as that goes, I wonder how we can relate it back to the presentations and what you've learned at the uh, INADR mediation tournament this year in Tbilisi, Georgia. I wonder if dehumanization is ever a part of what you do as mediators and how it, it shows up, what, what link there is between combating uh, dehumanization and bringing two parties into a successful resolution. Is there a link there? Well, dehumanization, uh, of course, it's a negative uh, notion, but it's a favorite one of mine. I have used it uh, during my PhD research. I use it generally. It's it's a standard for criminologists because you're able actually to commit any kind of crime the moment you dehumanize the other, which means the moment you um, remove human characteristics, human dignity, your perception of the other as, as, as a human being. So... Let me give you an example. We try to find, and this is also a human mechanism, we try to find excuses, we, we try to find reasons, we try to find justifications for our behavior. And on a subconscious level, uh, when we don't treat the other person as equal as another human being, this is dehumanization and it gives us a chance to commit crimes and even horrendous crimes. I mean, um, the basic research and theory behind dehumanization had to do and brought examples of what happened with concentration camps and uh, the behavior of Nazis against the Jews. It, it is the ultimate, let's say, example of uh, the worst form of dehumanization. Uh, but apart from this very specific case, as I said before, uh, in a smaller or larger scale, uh, people who commit crimes dehumanize uh, the victim. And Rehumanization is something that we attempt to do also when we mediate. So we try to make the two parts think of the other part as, as of equal um, value, of human value. If you and I have a difference, and I consider you of a lesser value, of, of less of a human, so you don't have the, the same rights like I do on that case, we will never find a solution. We will never find a viable solution. So it is indeed a principle that uh, we learn to use. 
And it has to do also with understanding. Well, empathy may be a very strong word, but we need a level of empathy. And empathy is part of, you cannot be, you cannot feel empathy and dehumanize at the same time. <laughs> okay. That makes uh, perfect sense to me. Well, I, f- I find it uh, interesting, of course, that the, uh, the this mediation tournament was held in uh, in Tbilisi in Georgia because, of course, um, the, the Nagorno-Karabakh region has come under a, a lot of focus lately. And between Georgia and, and Azerbaijan, uh, the conflicts that are, that are happening there as we speak. Uh, but also we can add to that list uh, Israel-Palestine. But also we can add, I'm sure, Greece and Turkey, not something that is immediately at... Uh, any kind of armed conflict, but there are tensions there, and and there are many other countries that that have tensions. So going back to this topic about mediation, how important is it to to talk about rehumanization when we are talking at the state level? Mediation is very important, not just for interpersonal relations. I mean, uh, the legal it was a law school tournament, so basically it would be mediation between parts in a civil dispute, but mediation principles are there for international uh, disputes and for situation between countries, as you mentioned them. Uh, and we could all learn. It's, it's the same, uh, actually, principles that apply. And, you know, for example, the Sinai example between Egypt and um, and Israel was a very good example of how mediation principles could apply because at the end of the day, it was not the positions, but the interests of the two countries that were uh, served with uh, with agreeing uh, on the Sinai. And it showed that if you apply the mediation principles, which means let's look at each other as you know equal parts of, of in, inside a problem, and let's see not at our positions, but at our interests. So. If your interest, and at that case in Sinai, it was quite uh, evident that for Israel, the interest was to be able to have peace. It was not the piece of land, but it was the peace that it wanted. So it all ended up with an accord with, with a situation that served both sides. Now, can we use this in, uh, in disputes generally? Yes. Will it work? It depends. It depends on the political leadership that exists in every country at a certain time. It exists on the level of the conflict. There are many issues. If we're talking now, I mean, I think that the the contemporary issue now of discussion is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at the dynamic has. You know, it's it's the situation where definitely we need rehumanization. We need sides to understand that the other side is also human. Uh, but there are also other parameters to be k- taking into account. So, for example, if you have two parts that agree uh, and they, you know, apply the principles of rehumanization and they try to reach one another and they try to reach a viable solution, the problem that usually arises uh, is what happens with groups in both sides that are on the extreme and will carry out definitely an act that will endanger the accord, that will endanger the um, the agreement. And I think that uh, also in mediation, one of the things that we try to take into account when as mediators we are trying to help the two parts reach uh, an agreement is trying to see whether in every side there are other people, other entities that will jeopardize the agreement, that will jeopardize this empathy, this rehumanization, all the elements that went well in order to reach an agreement. And I think that the problem 
in most countries and if we're talking about international level is this, that even if governments, even if the majority agrees and shows all these steps of rehumanization, blah, 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 what happens when there is even a small group inside them that will jeopardize this agreement, will carry out, let's say, a terror attack? Most, you know, I mean, we know in the past in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whenever an agreement was uh, soon to be reached, uh, an attack took place. And it, it could take place also from the Israeli side or from the Palestinian side, it didn't matter. Well, I find it very interesting when we when we're talking a bit about dehumanization today that we can be talking about a level as large as uh, Nazi Germany and the Holocaust and the horrible crimes that happened there, but we could be talking about something very very small scale like a, a man hitting his wife uh, who's unable to report it. And when we talk about rehumanization, we're talking about a similar solution or a similar principle of equality that we can apply in both cases, obviously at, at a bigger or larger scale. But I think one interesting thing that we've seen last year with COVID-19 and the pandemic is that it has shown the entire world the fragility of humans and the commonality of humans. This virus can affect any of us and has has devastated all of us in different ways. And I think this is very interesting. This, this pandemic that is horrible as it is, has also maybe shown us how similar we are uh, as a species. And so my last question for you today, Maria, is this experience that we have had of the pandemic, will it be a rehumanizing action? And can we see a more human tomorrow after this? I'm an optimist and a pessimist at the same time. Uh, I am a doctor of science, but a woman of faith. So as a woman of faith, as a Christian, uh, I always have this optimistic uh, belief and a belief uh, in the good of humanity. However, <laughs> as a person of science and watching what is going on around me. I have to say that this pandemic has shown, yes, as you said before, the fragility of all, how we are all susceptible to this virus, but at the same time, it showed how still there is injustice and also still in the pursuit of, um, let's say, health and fighting this virus, uh, there are divisions. Um, for example, uh, what will happen to the countries that are poor and don't have access to vaccines? Are we heading into uh, societies in the world with privileged who have access to health and continents that will not because they are poor? I'm not that optimistic that we woke up because of this pandemic. This pandemic, on the contrary, has shown to us, um, well, it has shown reality, all the problems that we face because of our behavior. Um, no, I don't see us waking up. Uh, again, the, the vaccine issue and... The whole talk, the whole debate about the medical costs and how this access to therapy for some countries uh, and its people who are poor is a problem, is still a problem, um, for me shows that we have not learned our lesson. And we have not learned our lesson when there are some, you know, guesses that, you know, after COVID-19, uh, other distractions and challenges, even from an environmental point of view, could, uh, could face the earth. And the question is, are we ready to face them? And are we ready to overcome it? Or will it be an issue again for those who are privileged, who were lucky enough to be born in Europe, who were lucky to be born in certain, let's say, racial, ethnic groups, and others will stay outside of the solution? 
Well, certainly more questions than answers, but I want to thank you for raising these very important questions, and uh, that will unfortunately conclude our conversation today. Thank you very much for your invitation. A big thank you to your listeners. I very much hope that we can get around to answering or trying to answer some of these questions for our next episode. But for now, Dr. Marielle Venu, thank you so much for your time, your thoughts, your consideration and your cutting commentary. And uh, I certainly hope to have you on the show again. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day. 